Geek Top 5 Quarantine Edition. Yay! It was time now. There was was all the time I needed. Geek Top 5. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we are back. It is late January in 2021. We are going to be trying to make a little bit more of an effort to keep track of the calendar because, uh, boy, is it hard to sometimes keep track of what day is what. Um, But we are back to do some serious digging uh, with another top five list and another special guest. Graham, why don't you lead us into what we've got today? I know this one tickles your, uh, maybe not funny bone, but your personal interest bone. Is that a thing? My comic bone? We should stop talking about bones. Uh, Anyway, we are here to talk about Chris Claremont, who is the preeminent X-Men comic book writer. And in a world where everything's all about superheroes, he should be right up there with Stan Lee when it comes to to comic book stuff because he's touched almost all the characters no one group more so than the X-Men. He started writing them on issue number 94, stayed with the book until issue 279 came back from 444 to 473, did a bunch of annuals, one shots miniseries, spinoff series there's no one who's had more of an impact on the X-Men universe than this guy and I don't even remember how it happened, but I stumbled across this amazing Twitter account called The Claremont Run that just did deep dives on specifically Chris Claremont's X-Men run. And so we reached out and got in touch with the man behind it, J. Andrew DeMond, and he is here to talk to us about Chris Claremont. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. This is so exciting for me. I feel like I'm meeting a, a celebrity. I, I just I, Every morning, I, I can't <laughs> wait to read the latest tweets. That's, that's good to hear. My kids are so unimpressed with my my work and my celebrity status. I will gladly be adopted by you if that's what you need. Deal. I can't even get them to read the comic books that I have. I've got a three-year-old who I've gotten hooked on on flipping through comics. I think it'll pass, but right now he just he likes flipping through them with me. That's good parenting. Thanks. Now, to be clear, uh, Andrew, you're not just tweeting about Chris Claremont like for the heck of it. There is a lot behind us. Um, there's a lot behind this. So why don't you tell us a little bit, of, well, I guess about yourself and then also about the, the project, about the Claremont Run, capital T, capital C, capital R. Sure. Um, so I did my, my, my PhD um, with a specialization in comics literature. Uh, and my dissertation was on comics. Um, so like this is my field of study. Um, then a few years back, maybe four years now, uh, I launched a research project expecting it to go absolutely nowhere. Uh, and we somehow got federal funding and I'm still not clear how that happened. (laughs) Um, so what we did was we hired a whole bunch of research assistants, some graduate and some undergraduate, and we gathered data, which is not something that's commonly done in, in humanities research, but like we went through Claremont's entire run and we counted stuff. Uh, like we counted how many thought bubbles Storm has, how many times Wolverine surrenders, um, just like all kinds of like seemingly obscure data that we could then use as the basis for um, a new system of studying Claremont because it's such a long run, right? It's it's perfect for data-driven analysis. Uh, and then from there, we decided to do um, what's called uh, micro-publishing, Uh, which is just a fancy way of saying we we publish in very small increments. So we maintain a Twitter account. At this point, it's just me because the research assistants are all gone because our funding is gone. (laughs) And we haven't applied for any new funding because we've already gathered the data, right? 
so we just publish little insights, charts, graphs, history, research, anything about Claremont on a daily basis. And that's where the project's at. It's incredible. I, I, how did you... I, I do want to hear more about your past, so I don't let me get too off track here, but how did you decide on his run versus something like a Stanley Jack Kirby run on the Fantastic Four or, or any of the other sort of epically long runs that uh, comic book creators have had? Yeah, that, so that was just like love because Claremont was um, the comics writer who really got me into comics. Um, the first comic that I really fell in love with as a teen um, and it's really weird. Like these things happen for strange sort of circumstantial reasons. But like I, I found out that I had access to this research funding and I had, I think, a weekend to propose a, a research plan. And I couldn't come up with anything. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I hadn't done research in a while, actually, at the time. Um, I was um, a full time lecturer. Uh, so I think I kind of was just like, screw it. I'm just going to do the comic that I love the most. <laughs> and, and that worked. So cool do you think that there are like if you were to branch out and do a sequel to this with another <laughs> long run is there one in particular that you you think would suit this model well yeah that that's tricky right because claremont's run is the longest in marvel comics history by a pretty wide margin actually um, the only ones that come close are bendis and bagley on ultimate spider-man and stan and jack on fantastic four what about like Dan Slott on Amazing? Is that up um, there? Ooh, he's he's up there. He's not quite as far ahead as those guys. Okay. Um, and then there's also um, Peter David on Hulk, right? Who did a good amount of stuff on like so. So I'd be interested in applying the method to another run. Um, but I mean, I'm so deep into this project at this point. Like it's it's three planned books. So I'm, I'm going to be working on this forever. And that's before I even scale it up because I really want to scale it up and start talking about Excalibur and New Mutants. Um, Amazing. I yeah. love Excalibur. For oh, some reason, here. when I was a kid and I, I would – it was probably a solid decade before I, I started collecting a run as it came out. And that was Ultimate X-Men. That's what really got me into the monthly comic scene. But before that, it was just – quarter bins or or garage yeah. sales and whenever i found excalibur it was like a gold in the the you know, mine shaft it was the best yeah, really love that run that alan davis artwork too oh, is so good so uh, let's uh, let's try not to wander too much into stuff that doesn't exist yet <laughs> um so this so this project you're, you've mentioned so you're gathering all this data on this this long run what's the what's the end goal what are we what are we trying to analyze and accomplish here uh, so in like literary scholarship in general, one of the things that we're taught to do is to look for gaps, which is to say there are great works of art and great creators who have had a massive influence that we're not talking about enough. And Claremont was a big gap, in my opinion. Like if you look at early comics scholarship, which would be like um, 1990s-ish, late 1990s, uh, Claremont's in the conversation. So people are talking about, you know, Neil Gaiman and Art Spiegelman and Frank Miller and Chris Claremont. Uh, and then in the 2000s, we completely lost touch with him, uh, which I always thought was kind of weird. Uh, and my going theory was that he was sort of a victim of his own popularity, which is a huge thing in comic studies because we're super insecure about the fact that we study comics, right? So we always try to pick the things that are, I don't know, the most obviously literary. And studying the best-selling comic at Marvel Comics for a decade is is not that. 
Um, so yeah, that, that, that's what lured me to it was, I, I feel like this guy's way under the radar. Um, I've also uncovered a whole bunch of data, including like talking to some creators that like Claremont's influence, particularly on modern media storytelling in terms of binge watching is enormous. So the people who are like responsible for creating the way that we tell these long form stories uh, on television, which used to be purely episodic, right? It used to be just one story per week and then a new story the next week. Now it's all continuous. Um, a lot of those creators, the ones who are having the most influence and in defining the modern media landscape, they will flat out say that they read X-Men comics as a kid and that's how they developed some of their technique. Um, um, Neil Gaiman um, tweeted about an, an article I wrote on the subject saying that yes, Claremont's fingerprints are all over modern television. And he's right. And I'm, I'm trying hard to like sort of prove that <laughs> <laughs> okay so can you tell us a little bit about uh, growing up like how you got into comic books and and where how you got from there to here um so i'm from thunder bay which is um north let's say <laughs> it's very north um <laughs> And um, I went to Lakehead University, which is the number one value-rated university in Canada. Uh, so what does that mean? That means that it's not the highest-rated university in Canada. <laughs> but you get the most bang for your buck. Yeah, the, okay, that works. The no-name brand of universities, I guess. <laughs> Uh, and, hey, look, you're you're talking to two Ryerson grads, and it, it definitely says I, university I in the name. I it's, love Ryerson too. I will not have you besmirch Eggy uh, the Ram. <laughs> you had to struggle to remember that one. Yeah, I you? did. I'm not a sports guy. <laughs> anyway, yeah. sorry. Please continue. Well, okay. So I was insecure about being an academic as well, and I had good grades and all that kind of stuff. So when I came down here, and I was just like the the bumpkin from up north, who <laughs> was you know always having to kind of justify what he was doing. Um, I came in as an American poetry expert. I lasted less than a year. I got absurdly bored and I thought, why am I studying this? Everything worth saying has already been said. Uh, it wasn't interesting to me and I was going to quit the PhD program, uh, but I went to my parents' place for Thanksgiving that weekend and I found my old comic book collection, which is just all X-Men Claremont stuff. Uh, and I was like, this is something I could be passionate about. So let's go back. Um, so I went back to the university and I said, I want to study comics. They weren't thrilled about that, as you might expect. Right. But I was already in the program. So what are they going to do? Uh, and then they they let me study comics, which is how I got started. Um, then I sort of snowballed from there, I guess. I, I got some publications under my belt, a whole bunch of conferences. Uh, I eventually became the president of the Canadian Society for the Study of Comics, which is um, like an 80-member academic institution, uh, and published a bunch of stuff, been studying comics ever since, and very much enjoying it. And that is my origin story. So when you were a kid, was it all all just Uncanny X-Men? And, and did you ever have a point where you became like too cool for comic books? Yes, I, I totally did. Um, okay, sorry. I, that's misleading. I was never cool. <laughs> but I, I had... <laughs> I had auspices of being cool at one point, maybe in like late <laughs> high school, um, and put the comic books away. And I deeply regret that. And that's kind of like a life lesson for me. If you love something, don't put it in a box. And I, I kind of did. Um, so I missed out on like, I don't know, five years of reading what would have been some really good comic books. So coming back to it, 
uh, as an adult was really kind of cool, especially when the comics hold up, right? You know, when you go back to like old comics from your youth and you're like, wow, this is bad. I don't like this anymore. (laughs) And then other times you go back to like Calvin and Hobbes and you're like, holy crap, this is actually still really good. Um, Yeah. That. Not to interrupt, but Graham, did that, is that a personal thing? Were you ever, did you ever consider yourself too cool for comics? No. I feel like I would remember that. I feel like, (laughs) I feel like I'm uh, the odd man out in there and, and uh, I don't know, (laughs) I don't know how I missed that stage. I think it sort of might be because I didn't really get into monthly comics until the later years of high school. So I, I guess comparatively I started late in in the monthly field. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, so, um, how many times do you think you've read this run at this point? Um, I don't know. And I can't track it because I can't read it consecutively, right? Like, (laughs) I'll I'll read something and then I'll go back and read an arc or a single issue because I'm checking on something. Um, many times there are some issues that I've read to death and you can, you know, you can tell on a comic book that it's been abused. (laughs) And... Um, like there's some issues where I'm like reading this and I'm like, not even a hundred percent sure I've ever read it before. Right. Which is really weird. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I did, but I'm like that with uh, some Star Trek episodes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just, I don't know. It's so non-continuous that you lose track. How do you, do you like the digital format? Do you read anything that way? Yes. I, for convenience sake, I like reading on a tablet. I can't read on a laptop. I just find it too clunky. Um, so I'll often read on a tablet, especially in order to get like Marvel Unlimited stuff, which is um, a really cool resource. Um, but I'm also a modest collector. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I'm a bibliophile. I, I like having the books. Yeah. For like trophy reasons, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can respect that. I, I've I had to sell the vast majority of my collection once uh, once my, my son was born because we needed the space and right. now we're in a slightly bigger house so the collection's starting to build again but it's uh, it's it's interesting I have a real the, the convenience of the tablet really helps I, I feel yeah. like I can read a lot faster on it which isn't yeah. necessarily a good thing but it I can I feel like I'm getting my money's worth a bit more yeah and you can read in the dark and yeah can carry it around with you and have a whole bunch of comics with you it's great yeah all right well let's uh, let's zoom in a little so we've been talking about the claremont run he's written a whole lot of x-men um for the folks in the audience who i know who haven't read every single issue back to back to back to back to back let's talk a little bit more about what exactly he's writing and why is it so interesting and is there anything i mean i, I say this is a leading question because of course there are things we'll recognize i've done my research but are there things that <laughs> the folks at home are going to recognize in this era where I guess starting probably with the first X-Men movie where comic books suddenly have made the leap to be actually cool and mainstream. Yeah, I think one of the things that Claremont was doing was being really progressive. Uh, He's got the um, first African-American leader of a superhero team. He's got the first female leader of a superhero team. Um, That would be be Storm in both cases. Yeah, exactly. Um, He's got a lot of queer subtext. He's got a lot of representations of um, fluid sexuality, non-essentialist sexuality. Um, Like like this book is, I don't know how to describe it, but its politics are very abnormal for Marvel at the time. And the weird thing isn't that it exists. The weird thing is that it exists at a level of popularity uh, that that it achieved. 
Do you know what I mean? Like the idea that you could have something so subversive and it'd be the best selling book at Marvel Comics for again, like a decade. Um, That's amazing to me. Uh, And it's also one of the first really, truly continuous stories at Marvel Comics. Uh, where it just, you know, you can't miss an issue, unfortunately, which I know is, it was a problem back in the day when we had to um, do all this bin diving to try and find these pieces of the story that we missed. Uh, and that really um, pushed the medium as well. It sort of expands the canvas on, on which that story unfolds, um, thus creating greater depth. Um, he was intense about artistic integrity. He gave money to his illustrators in order to get the best illustrators. He refused to leave for DC Comics, even though he could have, and leveraged that in order to get a lot more money from the company um, because he didn't want to leave his characters. The guy like got kicked out of the book for artistic integrity at a time when he was the best-selling comics writer in the world, and he still dedicated the novel that he then wrote to the characters from X-Men. Wow. Yeah. like, like He was really kind of intense about this. It's... It's fun, so, man. Do you think that so so he got kicked off in the the early 90s, which was a very big sea change in comic books. The the industry changed so much in those f- first few years at the beginning there. Do you think had he been allowed to continue going with the X-Men, would he have continued at that same level that he'd been at? I mean, how much longer could he have gone? I don't know. All I can say is that in my perspective, there was no signs of diminishment towards the end of his run. Like, I feel pretty strongly that one of his last arcs is among his best. Um, I, I think he was setting up a lot of really cool things that we didn't get to see pay off. Um, so in terms of like, like when he would have peaked, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I do feel a little like, you know, robbed. Uh, <laughs> that we, we didn't get to see where a lot of these things would eventually this Develop. this may sound like a, a weird tangent here, but on some level, it makes me think of of the TV show Firefly. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. In, in no way that's that comparable, like because it lasted sixteen episodes, whereas this is fifteen years. Uh, but Firefly is such a good to me. It's such a good TV series, partly because it never had a chance to disappoint me. Right. I wonder if there's like maybe we were saved from from <laughs> Claremont's decline. Yeah, I, I mean, sixteen years he was on it, so like you can't That's say he didn't, you can't say he didn't get a good shot, right? <laughs> um, we we have a lot to study, um, so I'm I'm still not complaining. Um, Firefly still makes me sad. Yeah, I agree. All of us, <laughs> all of us are sad. In the prime timeline, they definitely have more Firefly. Yeah, there's actually um, there's a really cool many worlds interpretation theory where a lot of scientists are actually um, TV signals are believed to be capable of penetrating dimensions. So there are scientists literally trying to pick up TV signals from other dimensions. So my joke is that somewhere out there is a bunch of scientists in a room trying to pick up season two of Firefly. <laughs> and, and that's how we'll confirm that there's multiple dimensions. And God bless them and their, you know, and their efforts on behalf of all of us. Exactly. So, um, so we're talking about this run. And I think we'll go into details when we hit your top five list. But I just want to touch on a lot of the examples I'm looking at at the stuff that Chris Claremont has written are the stuff that I consider to be like the meat and potatoes of X-Men things like you know things like Phoenix 
um, is the like, those are the stories that have become X Men movies, like that have become sort of the X Men popular. I'm maybe this is a, like a question for both of you, but it's like so compared to other stories that, that uh, other people have written for the X Men. I'm trying to think like what else is out there that's popular and how is it different? Because it's like from what I'm looking at, it seems like Claremont did everything interesting for these guys. Uh, I think that's that's kind of one of the problems <laughs> for X-Men as a franchise. Uh, ah. It exists in his shadow. And I think a lot of writers have shown deference to him where maybe they shouldn't have and should have been a little bit more experimental. I know Hickman takes a lot of flack, but I really like what Hickman's doing. Like what he's doing is not even remotely Claremont and, and the fans are kind of attacking him for it. But he's made X-Men something new for the first time since maybe Grant Morrison. Um, and that was like 20 years ago. Yeah, at Joss Whedon's run on Astonishing X-Men, yeah. also it, it built on stuff that, that uh, Claremont had done. And I, I also really love that run. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Grant Morrison definitely took it in wild new directions, and so did so did uh, Hickman, or so is Hickman. I also... I think it's probably controversial at this point since Bendis is a controversial figure, but I really enjoyed his X-Men run too. Me too. And I'm always like defending that to people. <laughs> I'm like, I know you're going to get mad at me, but I kind of liked Bendis's run. I think I, the time displaced guys stuck around too long, but I liked what he was trying to do. That's not his fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had fallen in and out of X-Men for years and, and I'd had a, a long fallow period especially after Astonishing and I would try and check in every now and then and Kieran Gillen's run or Matt Fraction's run and I, oh, none yeah, of them really clicked with it. for me they didn't click with me but the Bendis run brought me back fully into the fold and I was really engaged while that was going on yeah I was really excited for Lemire and then it was not my favorite <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's I, I I haven't read a lot of his uh, superhero stuff, but what I have read, I've never quite lived up to the hype for me. Well, he does the um, Essex County and the Underwater Welder, which is like very like folksy Canadian farmy type stories. And, and they're wonderful. And I was so excited for X-Men. And then I was just like, no, you are not writing Ilyana correctly. And I'm getting mad at you now. <laughs> It just seems it seems so weird that this guy we're so off topic here, but it's so weird that this guy went from writing these very independent, artsy, folksy Canadiana stories to suddenly writing Thanos and Justice League United and all this other stuff. And I I just think it's maybe too much of a, a shift for him. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So before we get to the list, can you tell us a bit more background on Claremont? Like, how did he get into the business? Is this something that he wanted, had in his head from the beginning? Uh, he actually started at Marvel as an intern. Um, famously, he got in because his dad had some connections with Mad Comics. Uh, and his dad called Mad Comics and said, can my son intern there? And they said, you don't want that because Mad Comics was all, you know, drugs and stuff in that era. <laughs> He's like, please don't send your kid here. Uh, but we'll get him a job at Marvel. <laughs> so they sent him to Marvel. He was a gopher. He worked with Roy Thomas. Um, and the editors there talked about the, this guy's, like, enthusiasm for the characters. Where, you know, like, like comics production is such a meat grinder mm. uh, that you really can't easily afford to be too interested in it and love the characters too much. 
Um, but the editors like Len Wein were picking up on that in Claremont. Um, so when Wein was giving up X-Men, he gave that job to a 25-year-old, Claremont mm. at the time. And, and that was controversial because this 25-year-old is getting a book? What the hell? Uh, and um, Claremont says that, like, like at the time, no one expected anything from X-Men. Uh, it, it was a C-list title. And that gave him massive creative freedom. Uh, and he lucked out. He got to work with Dave Cockrum and then John Byrne who would prove to be, you know, um, iconic illustrators from that time period. Uh, By the time they were done, he was fully established and X-Men was the best comic going. And that gave him a new form of creative freedom. So he went from having freedom because no one cared to having freedom because everybody cared. It's living the dream. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's so rare because we hear so many stories about comics writers getting, you know, massive editorial interference. Um, And being insulated from that can be powerful. One of the other things I wanted to ask about is um, he he's so integral to, to so many of the characters and, and the the thing that he, he's the engine that made a lot of these characters run and work in a way that that they hadn't previously or, or hadn't had the opportunity to previously. And yet he I don't think would have that many creator credits on a lot of the iconic characters that we associate with him. The only ones I can really think of are, are like Gambit and Rogue, right? Other yeah. than that, you know, Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Wolverine, all would be attributed to other people as as the creators. But it's it's is there anyone else I'm missing or or um, yeah, there's mean? a few like like, like Kitty. I, I think right. I think the big thing it brings up is the problem with how creators' rights work in comics. Because I would absolutely argue that Claremont did create Wolverine. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah, Wolverine exists before Claremont, but he's not Wolverine. He's not the character we know. Uh, and, and certainly Storm. I mean, Storm is completely different from from Ween's original um, incarnation of the character. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's a much broader problem in, in comics uh, in the way that we think about attributing, you know, um, who is the creator and who is the originator. And we give no credit to the cultivators, the people who reinvigorate characters or push them in new dynamic directions. Um, but that's just the way the industry works, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like there's there's so few that, you know, you, you think of Captain Marvel or, or Carol Danvers now, who is, is a yeah. huge icon. But I think the two people most that you could most credit with with her development as a character are probably Chris Claremont and Kelly Sue DeConnick. And yeah. yet neither of them would get a creator credit on her. Yeah, which is so weird and tragic in its own right yeah. and like like that's the weird thing too right because when they do like a film adaptation they'll credit the creators because that's the way the rights work but they can take a storyline that claremont completely devised uh and somehow frequently get away with not citing him as a writer which is very strange to me yeah he'll get like a special thanks in the credits or something like that yeah. if he's lucky and then what was it on new mutants was it uh was it bob mcleod where they, yeah, bob McLeod. they misspelled his name in the credits yep <laughs> <laughs> apparently they fixed that right but, but still like the level of insult to the yeah. creators is sad brutal can can i ask one more question mm. so the Claremont run starts after Giant Size X-Men number one. Giant Size X-Men number one brings the X-Men back from oblivion. They were, they were, the title was just reprinting old issues for something like 30 <laughs> issues uh, before Giant Size X-Men number one. They introduce a lot of new characters, bring back characters. The team now is Banshee, Cyclops, Storm, 
Colossus, Nightcrawler, a huge long list, but there's three jerks on the team. There's Thunderbird, Sunfire, and Wolverine. And I can totally understand why they would feel the need to pare that down to one as the series <laughs> got going. How did they choose Wolverine? Like, how is he the last man standing out of the three jerks? I don't know. I haven't heard much about like Sunfire. I, I know for, from Claremont's perspective, it did come down to Thunderbird versus Wolverine. Uh, and I believe the feeling at the time was just that Wolverine was more visually interesting uh, and had a little bit more potential to develop as a character, which I, I, I kind of agree with. I think Thunderbird fell into that stereotype a little too hard. Um, though I do and like when powers are kind of doubled with Colossus too, right? They're exactly. Like There's a double redundancy there. Yeah. 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 And Sunfire, I don't know. I think Sunfire should have stayed on the team. I liked Sunfire. I thought he was kind of cool. Uh, he's got some stereotypes going there as well, but I mean, so did all the characters. That was kind of the problem. Marvel wanted uh, a superhero team that they could sell to an international market. So they just created an international team, but like they hadn't been to Japan or to <laughs> Siberia. So it was all just based on what they'd seen in movies at the time. And that really showed in those early <laughs> issues. Okay. Well, thank you. That, that uh, helped clear that up a bit for me. And, and I agree. I mean, uh, he, there's a lot of story potential with Sunfire too. And yet he just sort of yeah. takes off at the beginning of uh, 94. Yeah, I think he quits three times in the first couple issues, which is <laughs> hilarious. Okay, so let's go into the list. So what is the, the list you've brought for us today? So I thought uh, appropriate to the author that I'm studying, just how big his sample is. Again, 16 years on one book. Uh, I thought it would be cool to look at something unique about a long run like that and look at the top five Claremont paradigm shifts. So how he reinvigorated X-Men and took it in a new direction on you know five different occasions, at least. And it's interesting how many of these coincide with new artists coming on board. And I guess I guess my next question is, um, with a collaborative medium like this, how do you find out what is the writer's work and what's the editor and what's the artist? Who's bringing what to the table? Is that yeah. even possible? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I labor with intensively. Um, I went to Columbia University to look at Claremont's archives, which are housed there. Uh, and just going through like faxes and notebooks and stuff like that, trying to figure out where different ideas are coming from uh, and how collaborative the process is. And when, you know, Louise Simonson is jumping in, when, when Anna Senti's jumping in, when an illustrator is pushing back, all that kind of stuff. It, it's not easy. Um, but that's kind of the, the other nice thing about the sample, right? Is it's all these things changing, editor, penciler, everything. Um, but the writer is the same for 16 years so that that creates something that we can at least kind of draw some patterns out of okay interesting uh yeah it seems like such a fascinating thing to to try and analyze okay so what's your number five uh i'm gonna go with the um dark phoenix aftermath so the dark phoenix saga the most famous x-men story of all time uh this is the death of gene gray in the aftermath of the dark phoenix saga claremont has cyclops quit the team so this is your main character around who your 40-issue story arc was based goes away. That's Phoenix, right? She's dead now. Um, she, she's not there. Your arc has to be about somebody else. She's gone. Uh, but at the same time, you're also losing your main viewpoint character, which is Cyclops, 
So like most of the narration, most of the thought bubbles, and our data supports this um, prior to this is Cyclops. He's also the leader of the team. He's also the legacy member of the team, the one who's been there since literally the first issue of X-Men in 1963. Um, he's gone. Imagine if the sixth Harry Potter movie was... Uh, Hermione dies and Harry quits and now it's the adventures of Ron and Neville and their pet frog. Uh, I know some people who are really into Neville, so it's not as crazy. as <laughs> There's a fan fiction out there that covers this, I'm sure. Yeah. But anyway, the, sorry. <laughs> but the point is that kind of reconfiguration is just radical. Uh, and this allows him to do some cool things. So first and foremost, he pushes Storm to the leadership role, has her instantly reigning in Wolverine, uh, which was a really cool thing that Cyclops could never do, has Kitty Pride come onto the team, this, this really prominent female sidekick slash viewpoint character, which is not at all common, um, again, in this era or any era since World War II. Uh, and allows the story to kind of build itself within the shadow of Dark Phoenix, the trauma that the team has suffered, um, and to have the, all these B stories about Cyclops working as like a longshoreman uh, and dating his sexy boat captain and stuff like that, uh, as opposed to, you know, shooting beams out of his face at robots. Uh, I wonder why they even, why he decided to, continue Cyclops' story. Like it feels like an easy way to just let him go and focus the stories completely on on the new X-Men characters. Yeah, and that, that's hard to trace too, because Claremont has said that that's what he wanted. He wanted Cyclops to have a happy ending. He felt that being an X-Man was not healthy, uh, and he wanted his characters to constantly retire. But uh, Marvel is in the intellectual property business, right? They're in the right. the selling action figures and lunchboxes business. And if you have an established property, that's valuable. And as soon as that character is dead or retired, you can't sell those action figures anymore. I mean, uh, did they try selling the Cyclops Longshoreman action figure? <laughs> <laughs> I would have bought that. You know, Batman, like they have the ones where he's like, he's skiing and where he's mountain climbing and where he's like tubing. Why not? Yeah, they have, they have too many Batman. <laughs> So, so yeah, no, there's definitely some editorial pushback on that. So I'm, I'm thinking this was more of a compromise. This is still Cyclops. He's still around and in the book. He's just not the leader of the team. So again, like this is, this is something that you could not possibly do in mainstream comics today. This would not happen. Um, so that's the, the number five paradigm shift that I have on my list. So the Dark Phoenix Saga, it's the iconic story of, of the X-Men universe and, and everything since has done, like every creator who comes on board seems to want to do their own version of the Phoenix story. Yeah. It's been done in the movies twice now. It, Arguably. When, you know, Jesse and I... <laughs> <laughs> when Jesse and I were kids, we were way into the X-Men animated series and yes. which relied heavily on the Claremont run and I'm... I, I'm appreciating that more now rereading these or reading some of these Claremont issues for the first time, uh, how much they took from just this Claremont run is amazing. How much as, as the preeminent uh, Chris Claremont scholar, how much of the Phoenix storyline was planned from the get go? Um, most of it, I think the, the thing that wasn't planned of course was the ending. Um, this is a sort of famous comic story. And by the way, there are many different accounts on exactly what happened. Uh, which has been fun for me to research. But basically, they weren't planning on killing Jean Grey. They had to because Jim Shooter um, was holding true to a rule that um, superhero characters can't kill and not go unpunished. And, and Jean, as Dark Phoenix, sort of kind of killed an entire planet 
uh, <laughs> sort of, of kind people. Of, you know how that yeah. works. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> so Shooter said she had to die. Um, so they went back and they wrote it. And I would argue they got lucky because, ah, man, I, I, I love Jean Grey as a character, but her death was poignant. Now, so so I've, I, my understanding just from years of reading rumors and speculation and whatever is that there, uh, shortly thereafter there became this sort of challenge to find a way to bring her back and no one could satisfactorily do it until I think, was it Kurt Busiek came up with an idea? And then, yeah. And then yes. they brought her back in Fantastic Four, right? Yes, Fantastic Four and, um, um, wow, uh, Avengers. Uh, right. without Claremont's knowledge, they knew Claremont was going to be super pissed. So they had this beautiful strategy where in order to inform him of it, they had his editors take him out and get him drunk at a restaurant <laughs> on a Friday night because wow. they knew if they told him while well, the offices were still open, he would have quit. Wow. Knowing that he, you know, can't quit because there's no one here to take his resignation, <laughs> uh, gave him a weekend to calm down, which he did. Okay. And so how, how do you feel about how they brought her back? I think it was awful. <laughs> it's just my opinion. Like, I, it, it undid a lot of that poignancy for me. I, I think it's pretty objective, frankly. I, yeah, I think that's a pretty low point in the storytelling. Yeah, and then the, just the way it was handled thereafter and Cyclops abandoning his wife and child. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's how you grow up to be Cable, so... <laughs> So, I, I mean, one of the things that, that kind of bugs me is that people roll their eyes about Jean Grey because supposedly she's always dying and coming back to life. But to my count, she's only died twice and come back twice, uh-huh. I think. And well, it much. depends if you count clones and alternate timelines. And like, look, I know you guys are both into this a lot more than me, but <laughs> as someone only casually interested in the X-Men... When I hear Jean Grey, I know that she's always either about to turn evil, evil, or dead, and that it rotates <laughs> on a fairly frequent basis. Yeah, they they really milk that Dark Phoenix sort of lingering drama and nostalgia uh, to an absurd degree. And, and the amount of like scenes where there'll be a shadow behind Jean that kind of sort of looks like a phoenix, and everyone's like, oh crap, they're going to do it again. <laughs> that happens a lot. All right, what is your number four? Number four, um, the X-Men go through the Siege Perilous. Uh, this is a really weird sort of um, um, Arthurian attribute of the story. They get this magic amulet that will basically reset their lives and disperse them and give them new identities and they won't even remember who they were kind of thing. Uh, and then in UXM 251, they go through that portal. The X-Men are broken at the time. They think Storm is dead. Wolverine is gone. There are like four of them, I think. I think it's Colossus, Psylocke, Dazzler, and Havoc. And Psylocke knows that the Reavers are coming and are going to kill all the X-Men. So she uses her powers to push them through the Siege Perilous. And just like that, there are no X-Men. There's former X-Men out there in the world, but there is no X-Men team. Uh, So you have a comic book that essentially dissolves itself, but keeps going. Uh, And what happens in the aftermath is this character, Forge, who's kind of a jerk uh, and, you know, not particularly super heroic and makes a lot of bad choices. uh, He decides that he's going to carry the torch, so to speak, uh, and try to get something resembling the X-Men back together because he's inspired because they've kind of like touched his life a little bit. Uh, So this is a run that made a lot of comic store retailers very nervous. 
again, the idea of X-Men without X-Men, um, <laughs> but led to some really cool storytelling opportunities and really sort of showcased the value of X-Men as a concept rather than as a group of individuals. Just going to uh, ask for a bit more info on, on Forge. Like what makes, what made him, what makes him an interesting character? Like what brought him into the fold? So, so he basically comes into the fold because he makes a gun that steals mutant superpowers and it gets used against his will on Storm. Uh, and he takes her in and sort of helps her heal and deal with the fact that she no longer has her powers. But as I said, he's not the best human being in the world. Uh, and he's gaslighting her and doing some other kind of bad things. Um, but he's sort of inspired by her example. Uh, and he helps the X-Men later on in the Fall of the Mutants storyline. Uh, and as I said, he, he feels that tragedy personally when the X-Men are gone. Um, so he makes it his mission. So it's, it's really, really weird. He, he's a very unlikely carrier of that torch. But at the same time, it makes a lot of sense that he would be because, again, he's been exposed to Xavier's dream. And that's viral, right? That That impacts his life, changes who he is. And overnight, he goes from this sort of shallow Tony Stark-like character um, to someone with a real mission and purpose uh, and kind of becomes Claremont's pet character development for uh, the later portion of the run, something that a lot of people have forgotten. And I would argue that nobody's, like, nobody's come close to writing Forge well <laughs> since. He's he's a, an interesting character. I mean, he's a this Vietnam vet, although I don't know if that's sort of been the timeline has moved enough that he's no longer yeah, right. a Vietnam guy. <laughs> he's also Native American. He's got a lot of of background there. And yet you're right. He's he's a character who was very important towards the end of that run, who's kind of disappeared. He never really yeah. he, he was an X factor for a little bit, I think. But yeah, generally he's he's kind of a forgotten character he became tech support <laughs> yeah yeah very much so. he, he got demoted to tech support which is i mean it makes sense for him to be in that role his, his superpower is um technomancy but eh, like there was a lot of really good character development that could have been picked up i think um, i would love to see forge get a little bit more attention and play in the current iteration i mean there's been what 12 movies 15 movies at this point in the the big x-men uh fox universe and they've had characters from like beak through to (laughs) (laughs) through the blob but i don't think they've done forge yet which seems like a missed opportunity i I get really mad when they like the movie director or creative team wants to like i'll introduce my own x-man and i'm like no you owe that space to a pre-existing character so I can clap when I see them. <laughs> it's almost worse though when they, they use a pre-existing character and then it's Deadpool from X-Men Origins and you're like, why did you do this? Yeah, yeah you've ruined something I loved. <laughs> okay, so that's a, that's a cool storyline and I don't think it's one that gets talked about a lot. So it would be really interesting to read more about it and read that, that run again. But what's your number three? Number three is kind of an obvious one. Um, John Byrne comes on the book in UXM 108. Um, Dave Cockrum was tired, basically. (laughs) Uh, He had been promoted at Marvel and um, he he just wasn't having enough time and he wasn't being able to be with his family as much as he wanted. So he leaves and John Byrne has been like desperate to draw X-Men and has made it very, very clearly known. Um, the line that Byrne uses is that um, I made it known that if, if X-Men went to another penciler when Cockrum left, um, men would die. 
Uh, so he's, Bernard, a, he's a dramatic guy. He's an yeah. intense man. <laughs> so he comes on the book in 108. He elevates the material to new heights. Um, Byrne is a, a really precise draftsman. Um, more so than Cockrum. Cockrum is extremely talented as well. But but Byrne um, maybe can do a little bit more. And, and notably, Byrne can work fast, which means he can keep up with the schedule, where Cockrum has admitted that he was cutting corners um, toward the end, which is never good. Uh, Byrne also, however, is known for um, his contribution to plotting and being a very sort of classical, tight storyteller, something that Claremont is absolutely not. Um, Claremont likes to wander and meander and doesn't care what act we're on uh, or, or anything like that. Um, so Byrne brings a nice kind of balance to those stories and X-Men becomes, um, well, I mean, more structured um, than it ever has been you know, before or since, um, creating um, really kind of iconic translatable stories like like the burn claremont stuff makes for good movies makes for good episodes of the tv series um in a way that doesn't even need that dense continuity so coming from somebody who's never heard the name joan Byrne before hit me with some examples what have they written that's like what are these things that are so, so well known so Byrne was the um illustrator slash co-plotter on dark phoenix saga on days of future past um he would then go on to um write maybe the most famous Fantastic Four outside of Lee Kirby. Uh, he would then do She-Hulk uh, and make that kind of iconic. Um, West Coast Avengers. Um, um, Alpha Flight. You know, thank you. How do I forget them. Alpha Flight? <laughs> yes. The CanCon. Yeah, he didn't even want to do Alpha Flight, which I thought was strange. Um, but, but he he's, did. He's the Canadian co-creator of the team, so I mean, I guess you gotta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you said, he's gotta so, represent just for our, our non-X-Men listeners, Alpha Flight is like the Canadian superhero team. Yes, and sold really well. Not enough people talk about that. Like, Alpha Flight petered out in a hurry, but when it launched, it was a best-selling book at Marvel Comics. So the idea that Canadian superheroes were suddenly marketable, we haven't had that before <laughs> or since. <laughs> but I, a lot of that has to do with Byrne, who had, yeah. you know, a hell of a reputation at that point and is inarguably like like he's become a bit of a controversial figure in modern times. But at the time, he was an incredible writer and an incredible artist, and he was doing them at the same time on multiple books. It's, yeah. it's insane. His his output I mean, Claremont too. Claremont for sure, but Byrne was putting out so many books as the writer and artist. And then he jumped to DC and redefined a bunch of their characters. Yes, and jumped to DC specifically because he was still pissed off at Claremont. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Which is, uh, we'll have to get into that a bit more, but like, how do they come back together and do that short Justice League run? I don't know. I, I haven't heard that story. Um, but like to this day, they don't talk. Uh, and, and there was even little digs at each other within the books. Constantly. So yeah. unprofessional. <laughs> yeah, really deeply unprofessional, actually. Like, shockingly unprofessional. Um, uh, Nascenti claims that they roped Claremont in, that he wanted to lash out at Byrne more. Uh, and other Marvel editors have claimed that, that Byrne could have used an Anne Nascenti in his life to <laughs> rope him in a little bit as well. So can you tell us a bit about how their relationship dissolved from what you know? Uh, over a tree um <laughs> there's a scene where colossus is yanking a tree out of the ground uh and um Byrne says that it's going to be a huge struggle for him when he was designing the plot claremont gets to script it so he gets the last word 
Um, so he, he writes it contrary to what Byrne has plotted and says, with relative ease, Colossus yanks out the tree. Um, I might even have this backwards, by the way. Uh, and Burns just like, screw it. I can't deal with this pettiness anymore. <laughs> and he walks. I mean, that seems like pretty small fish, but I mean, I guess <laughs> it, it's- it had been building. Okay, so it was the straw that broke the camel's back. These guys have been getting on each other's nerves for a while before this. Yeah, and allegedly the big issue was um, the previous editor listened to Burn. Uh, and then he got fired allegedly because of the Dark Phoenix saga thing where he missed that Phoenix killed a planet, which he shouldn't have let them do. Uh, and then um, Louise Simonson comes on and she's much more sympathetic to Claremont and Byrne doesn't like that power shift. So he walks. Wow. So how did he end up as the, the main plotter? Like, how did that slowly build? Was that just because the, the previous editor liked him better? Um, I think so. Like, like Burn and Claremont worked really well together previously. They worked on um, Iron Fist. Um, they worked on, um, what was it called? Uh, uh, Marvel Comics Presents or something like that. Uh, and they got along. They got along really, really well. Uh, and Claremont is usually pretty open to collaboration um, from what we know. He, his illustrators can get frustrated with him in terms of his artistic, like, like no, we're not doing it that way kind of thing. Mm. Um, but he's been pretty good at inviting the illustrator in and saying, what do you want to draw? What kind of stories do you want to tell? And very noticeably adjusting his writing style to the skills of the penciler. Uh, and, you know, maybe we'll see that on my number one on this list. <laughs> and yeah, so um, I, I don't know. It's a really weird, toxic relationship. Uh, there's many, many accounts of what the tension was. Was it power? Was it creativity? Um, was it politics? Um, Byrne has said that he he didn't like all the sex stuff that Claremont was doing, um, which I think a lot of people read as code for he di- he didn't like the queer subtext because Byrne did a lot of sex stuff um, with like She-Hulk and some other books. Interesting. Okay, well, I mean, I feel like we could do a whole show just on the Burn claremont relationship, but what's uh, what do we got for number two? Number two, um, the beloved one. The X-Men go into deep cover in Australia in UXM 229. Um, the Australia, or Outback era as it's called, uh, is amazing. It's again a massive status quo shift because now we're not living in a mansion anymore. Uh, now we're living in this like really kind of crappy desert shantytown. <laughs> Uh, and we're no longer doing this this Charles Xavier um, moral righteousness show of authority kind of thing. We're, we're actually going to go paramilitary uh, and we're going to attack our enemies. Uh, so it, it's this weird deep cover X-Men era that the fans really loved. It's incredibly short, like it's about a year uh, and still considered an iconic era in X-Men history, even though they weren't there very long. It actually ends with the Siege Perilous, which we talked about. Um, and this is the arc that leads to and includes Inferno, which is Claremont's biggest, longest simmering storyline, um, even though that doesn't actually take place in Australia, but a lot of it kind of does, and the buildup certainly does. Uh, so it, it's a completely new look for the book. It's mostly new characters. Uh, it's not what Marvel envisioned X-Men as being, and that's one of the reasons it's really compelling. And I mean the Inferno storyline. Speaking of the the sex stuff, it, the Inferno storyline <laughs> really puts that on the front burner. Yes, very much so. Uh, you you have um, Havoc having a sexual affair with his brother's wife. It's weird. So in Inferno, it's like the demons take over and everyone's clothes disappear and everyone's acting all evil and. Um, uh, 
what's the I can't think of a polite way to describe it, but they're like really interested in getting down. Like all the 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 their inhibitions are gone. Yeah, it's it's, it's like a bacchanalia. I think is the classical term to describe it. Right, and and um, Cyclops's wife who turned out to be a clone of Jean who no one really realized was a clone of Jean for a long time. <laughs> she ends up becoming the Goblin Queen and has uh, a, like an affair with Cyclops's brother. It gets very soap operatic. Yeah, uh, and eventually is like trying to kill her own baby. It's it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> but really I, good. It, it sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the the Australian Outback, it's uh, Colossus and Havoc and Dazzler, a, a weirdly deeply tanned Dazzler. And uh, yeah. that's where Jubilee gets introduced. I guess at that point, it had been long enough that uh, Kitty Pride had aged out of being the kid sidekick. And so they needed to introduce kid sidekick Mark II. So there was Jubilee. And for, for our generation, she was she was the entry point in the cartoon. So I think that's right. we're in this weird age group where where she's the teen sidekick hero, less so Kitty Pride, and, and like people a little older than us were way into Kitty Pride. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, as you said, it's just just sort of acknowledging a transition to a new generation. Yeah, and then they they have it's weird. They there's this sort of mute uh, Aborigine gentleman in the outback named Gateway, and he is how they get around the world. He's they don't have the the uh, blackbird jet anymore. They just have this guy who opens portals for them. It's it's such a huge shift. It's almost it's it's the sort of thing you would expect a new writer taking over the book to do not the same guy who'd been doing it for 15 years at that point yeah exactly and again it creates some cool new opportunities and allows them to do new stuff uh, and explore new characters in a dynamic way all right so what's number one number one which i think is less obvious um paul smith replaces dave cockrum um this is cockrum's second run so after burn gets mad over the tree and leaves dave cockrum comes back because his um, um, life and work circumstances had changed at that point. Uh, does a few issues of X-Men, does some good work, uh, and then leaves again, this time a little more frustrated with Claremont in the process. Uh, and Paul Smith comes on, this really young penciler that they got out of the advertising industry. Um, he does completely the opposite, I would say, of house style at the time. Uh, his comics look very like smooth and contoured and romantic and angular. Uh, and he worked for 11 issues uh, of Uncanny X-Men, um, which is, you know, not much. Uh, but the book completely reconfigures itself in this time, moving from this sort of far out, largely plot based storytelling to these really intimate character portraits. Um, and, and this is where I think a lot of people really fell in love with the characters of X-Men, because this is where they get developed to um, a really substantial degree. This is where X-Men becomes a soap opera. Um, that occasionally has, you know, people shooting blasts out of their face. <laughs> but that's the, I mean, but that's the kind of thing Claremont is known for, right? Like that's, yeah, exactly. like they talk about how like, like his deal is that the, where the story is about the character doing a monologue essentially. But that's like, is that something that only came at this time? Like, is it, like, did it start here specifically or is this just it distilled? Well, you can, you can, de yeah, you can definitely see it like a little bit in the pre-Smith stuff, but that gets amped up to an absurd degree in Smith. Like I wouldn't call anything pre-Smith soap opera. 
uh, like it has soap opery scenes and soap opery elements, but at the end of the day, it's we're we're, we're going to fight a bunch of evil bird space alien things. Um, Smith changes that. Smith finds a way to make the character drama immersive and Claremont responds to it. So instead of feeling this, this need to constantly write these action sequences, um, he can actually base the drama around the character relationships rather than having to have the drama exist around the plot. Um, and, and I think that's what signals the transition. And even when they sort of move away from that a little bit, because they're never as soap opera-ish as they are in Smith's era, um, they've gained something, right? Because the characters have been cultivated and they have a greater depth. So when they do go back to fighting the Shi'ar, well, now it's not just the steel Russian guy fighting the Shi'ar. It's tortured artist Peter Rasputin fighting <laughs> the space aliens. And that makes for you know a, a more dramatic investment on the reader's part. And I, I think the two most iconic things that come to mind anyway for me from this run are the development of Wolverine's relationship with with Mariko like he's getting yeah. he's he's like they're, they're he's gonna get married to her and then there's a betrayal and and he's all like heartbroken and that's such a massive shift for him and then the development of Rogue as as a hero oh yeah yeah and Rogue is one I mean Wolverine cries while wearing a kimono in that arc <laughs> I don't think anybody Beautiful. saw that coming <laughs> uh, and yeah, rogue, rogue. This this idea of um, perceiving your enemy not as this cartoonish mustache twirling villain, but as a exploited child <laughs> who's who's desperate for assistance. So rogue comes in as this hard case character, but you clearly get the sense of her desperation um, during this era. So yeah, no, there's there's so many good character developments um, during the Smith run that again is an investment in the long term. Uh, both in terms of the direction of the book and in terms of the characters that it's going to keep moving forward. As far as Rogue goes, uh, so Rogue, when she first appears in Avengers Annual number 10, she's got gray in the hair and she sort of looks older, mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, maybe late 30s, early 40s. But by the time of this Paul Smith run, she's definitely de-aged to like early 20s. Is that his influence or is that just something that happened with the character over time? Um, <laughs> that might be a fault in the uh, Michael Golden since original illustration. <laughs> she, she was supposed to be young, um, but, but okay. certainly Paul Smith softens her, right? I, again, with the way that he draws. I mean, Marvel at the time, like you can tell a villain by the shape of their face, right? Uh, not even the fact that they're like wearing skulls on their costumes or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, but, but literally the, the, the way that their cheekbones are drawn will usually indicate whether a character is good or bad. Uh, so, yeah, as soon as Rogue turns good, um, her illustration style turns good to match it. And I think it's really hard to have a young character with a sharp face. Uh, so I think that's a big part of why she looks older in those early issues. Okay. Interesting. And so why, why do you think she had the gray in the hair then? Is that just like a stylistic choice or or it's such yeah, a Yeah, I think it was thing. a riff. Yeah, I think it was a riff on like Bride of Frankenstein. Okay, <laughs> which is it like does a, make her uh, easy to identify, right? Yeah. Like real, real quick. Yeah, which is which is such a thing of most lazy comic book writers. You have to give them like a big, outstanding feature so that people can literally tell characters apart. Okay, so I think uh, I think we covered the list. Um, it was fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you about this stuff for hours and, and bring you back for list after list after list. But <laughs> thank you so much for this. Well, thank you again for having me. This is fun. 
Andrew, that uh, if folks are interested in the project and want to learn more, uh, where can they go? Where can they find out more about what you're working on? I think the best thing is just to go to our Twitter account because, again, we're, we're publishing every day. Uh, so um, at Claremont Run, all kind of one thing uh, on Twitter. Um, other than that, you can just like Google Andrew Demand, um, and you'll get like lots of articles and stuff that I've written. Uh, if you want to see sort of the broader form that this this project is taking, but at Claremont Run on Twitter is the, the the easiest way to start. Sounds good. And those videos, those are up at Claremont Run. It's uh, ClaremontRun.com. Um, our data is up on ClaremontRun.com. Our videos we just actually have on YouTube. You can just look up Claremont Run on YouTube, and you'll see our video essays that we've been producing. I think we're at like twelve at this point. Awesome. Okay, plenty of cool stuff to dig through. We'll put some. We'll put all those links in uh, in the episode description when we post it. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Really appreciated having you join us here today. And uh, while we're giving out thanks, I also want to mention special thanks to Jamie Reum, guy behind our theme song. Uh, Reum is spelled R E A U M E. Check him out, uh, Jamie underscore Reum on Instagram and Jamie Reum official on YouTube. And finally, we want to say thanks to you, our audience. Um, very literally, in this case, it's because of you that Graham and I get to do this nonsense with microphones, but it's also because of the you know the passionate fans that it gets up to to folks like like Andrew, like Andrew here who have been able to turn this stuff <laughs> into a into a productive career without it seeming you know when Graham and I read comic books, it's considered less productive. So <laughs> I can't live up to that. that- yeah. That being said, um, you may have uh, some other things to contribute, other things that Claremont has done that you'd like, or other things that uh, you may want to, you know, combat. You may want to say that maybe, well, heck, you want to talk to the doctor. There's all kinds of ways you can get a hold of him, but also ways you can criticize Graham and myself, of course. Graham, how can they get a hold of us? We are available on email at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5, and we're on Twitter at geektop5. We are always encouraging you to send us your feedback because occasionally we get some really interesting stuff. And, uh, hey, if it comes right down to it, be happy to have you if you have a list of your own. Um, in the meantime, be sure to check out the Claremont Run. Some of those video essays are absolutely fascinating. And, again, check them out on the Twitter, at Claremont Run. That should be plenty of material to keep you busy uh, until we get a chance to talk to you again. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week.